Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is former Green Party leader Natalie Bennett talking about system change at Exeter Phoenix, February 2019. Thank you everyone for coming along to an evening entitled System Change. And I have to say it's the first time I've ever given a talk like that and I thought that was a bit brave because it sounded a bit boring. So thank you very much for engaging with a boring sounding kind of topic. One of the things that makes me unusual in politics is that my first degree was actually in agricultural science. And there are very few people in politics from a scientific background. And that's something I'd like to see very much changing. So anyone here from a scientific background, please think about going into politics. It's not quite as bad as it looks, really, I promise. (laughs) Okay. So this is a talk about system change. But actually, where I'm going to start is with a blouse, an item of clothing, a fashion item. And I'm calling it the amazing disappearing blouse because that all starts from a, a, some research done by the, I have to read this because it is complicated, the Institute for Polymer Composites and Biomaterials of the Italian National Research Council. They were doing research about something everyone in this room's probably heard at least something about, which is the issue of plastic microfibers. And you know, a few weeks ago, I was with a, a slightly different audience in Sefton on the outskirts of Liverpool with the Women's Institute, because the Women's Institute actually has an absolutely cutting-edge end plastic soup campaign about the issue of microfibers <coughs> coming from clothing. So this Italian research was done, and they took various items of artificial clothing and they washed them a few times, and they were aiming to measure what fibres came off them. What they found was they bought a blouse from Zara, and after a few washes, they didn't have a blouse left, they just had microfibers. The whole thing had totally dissolved. And what I want to do is use the picture of that blouse to think about how we might get to a world where we don't have blouses like that on sale in a high street store somewhere down the road not very far from here. Now I'm not, I should stress, not particularly picking on Zara. I'm sure you could choose half a dozen or a dozen other brands that would have exactly the same result. I was in the climate talks in Katowice for two weeks and there the fashion industry was starting to rise up the agenda in terms of climate emissions. It couldn't have been more perfectly set up if I'd tried because this actually, I happened to be in Brussels, that's where I walked into Zara, but I'm sure you'd find the same thing here in Exeter. I walked through the front door and there was a top right inside the front door It was some sort of clear plasticky fabric. It was actually like plastic. It was a top covered in gold sequins. And the sequins were already rubbing against each other and catching on the material. And it was very clear that you could not wash that garment that was falling apart before your eyes even in the shop. So why is this happening? Why do we have this fast fashion? Why do we have this incredibly cheap stuff that lasts barely a few washes? Well, one of the things, of course, perhaps slightly counterintuitively, is poverty. I very much don't want to pick on anyone, and if there is anyone in this this, uh, uh, room who bought something from Zara today, sorry, I'm really not picking on you. Because for lots of people in our society, say you've got a job interview on Monday, and you need to, you know, look your best for that job interview, it's a job you really badly need to get. 
you're going to go into Zara or Primark or one of the equivalents. You're going to go somewhere where you can buy a five quid t-shirt. And even if you know it won't last very long, you can't afford the 40 pound organic hemp, fair trade, all the other labels. It's just not a viable option. So for lots of people, these stores are simply when they really need an item of clothing, even though they know it's actually not a good investment, there is no alternative. Poverty is one of the things that drives this sort of fast fashion. There's also, if you go around town in Exeter or anywhere, you go on the internet, everywhere you'll see adverts for shops like Zara. And you think about what the, the underlying message is. Basically, if you're miserable, if you feel like you're struggling, you're having a hard time, the things that will cheer you up, the things that will make you feel better, the things that will improve your life, and maybe mean you get that man or woman you're after, you get that job you're after, you even just feel better about yourself. Everywhere you're being bombarded by adverts giving you that kind of message. And we know we've got a mental health crisis. We have a huge waiting list for any kind of mental health treatment on the NHS. People are miserable and what these stores offer is some kind of hope of feeling better, even if only for a little while. And then there's the third aspect of this, which I'm actually drawing on my personal experience here. I have to anonymise this fairly carefully, so it's, if you give me, it's, it's a little vague. But some time ago, I was a boss. And, you know, as a boss, you have to do lots of different things, including counselling your staff when their lives are clearly going off the rails. And so I had this member of staff who was always in financial trouble. And every lunchtime, she went out and came back with some more clothes she'd bought. And so I sort of said, you know, I understand you've got this problem and, you know, but I see you seem to be shopping a lot. You know, have you thought about doing other things in your, your spare time, your free time than shopping? And it became very obvious to me, and she was a woman in her sort of mid-twenties, that she literally could not think of anything else to do with her spare time except go shopping. That's what you do in your spare time. And if you think about it, you think about what our schools are like and have been like for quite some time, gradually getting worse but going on for a long time. Our schools have basically been forced to become exam factories where pupils are shoved through exam after exam after exam. And all of those creative type subjects have all been dropped out. If it's not tested, if there's not an exam on it, it's really not worth doing. And so I would say that, you know, I spend a lot of my time talking about schools being exam factories and how we need an education for life, not just exams. Indeed, yesterday I was tweeting about, because there was an article in the Times, about people saying, oh, well, music lessons in government schools are no good because they're not good enough to prepare people for a career. And I said, not all of education is about preparing people for a job. How about preparing people for life? And, you know, if my staff member played a musical instrument, that would have been something she could have done other than gone shopping. So we've started with this blouse, and where we're getting to is thinking about how there's so many reasons why we've actually seen in the past 10 years in the UK, consumption of fashion has doubled. Now, most people in this room will recall 2008. I don't think there was too many people walking around naked or in rags in 2008. We clearly don't need double the amount of clothing that we had 10 years ago. But we've got a system that's pushing it on people. We've got people who can't think of other things to do. We've got people who are miserable and told this will cheer them up. So all of these things are feeding in to this dissolving blouse. Now, one of the obvious things you might think about this is, well, you know, at the moment, about 60% of textiles are actually made with artificial fibres. So maybe we could, you know, let's stop using artificial fibres and use natural fibres. But of course, producing wool has pretty significant climate change effects. 
Perhaps we can get on to George Monbiot and rewilding, but we've got those bare hills that could have trees on it where the sheep are. Cotton sucks up enormous quantities of water. They basically created deserts in parts of Russia and Eastern Europe. Yeah, even organic cotton still has pretty significant impacts, while non-organic has massive impacts with the use of pesticides. So there's absolutely no way we can produce 60% more natural fibres. Now, just to get in in advance of a question that I know will come otherwise, yes, hemp is wonderful. It's a wonderful crop, but we can't blanket the world in hemp. You know, we should produce more clothing from hemp, but it's not the solution to this problem. So what we really need is less clothing. And when I was at, Kat at Katowice at the climate talks, it was interesting because for the first time there was an official event involving the fashion industry. And that's a step forward when you consider that the climate emissions of the fashion industry put together are equivalent to maritime shipping and aviation combined. So for the first time there was an event there and you know there were some good people from the industry saying oh you know we're, we're going to try and get our materials in a way that produces less uh, climate change gases, we're going to try and ship them around more efficiently and we're going to sort of you know use less energy in our stores which will of course save them money. But what no one said until I put my hand up and asked was are you going to produce less clothing? Because one of the NGOs has calculated if we had like half the amount of clothing in the global north that we have now, if we went back to the 2008 levels in Britain, that would halve carbon emissions of the fashion industry. But of course, if we're going to have half as many clothing, we can't have things like Zara that just get washed three times and then fall apart. So you can see how everything is interrelated to everything else. It's all connected. What we need is systems thinking. And there's one final bit to add into this story about the disappearing blouse, because I don't know the particular story of, of where this is made and the detail of it. But I was actually in, um, in London on the Tube a couple of weeks ago, and it just really struck me. There's a, there's a website called Boohoo. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Forgive me if I'm not. And there was a T-shirt or a sort of top there, which had a whole sort of interwoven front of a laced front. And I was looking at that and thinking how skilled you'd have to be as a seamstress to make that. And it was out there advertised gaily in the tube for six pounds. And so I wondered how much did the seamstress get of that six pounds? And the answer, of course, is not very much. I started by focusing on the environmental disaster, but what we also have here is enormous social disaster of people being exploited, maltreated. The name Rana Plaza, most people in this room will remember that. More than a thousand, mostly women, died in a factory collapse or many factories in one building collapsed. When I talk to students now in schools, of course, that's well before their memory, but it hasn't really improved. So we've got all of those things and they've got to change. But we can't just look at going, we need to change the fashion industry. We need to change the whole nature of our society, I would argue, to make it less unhappy. We need to change our education system so that people know other things to do with their time other than go shopping. We need to look at how we actually perhaps teach people to repair clothes rather than throw them out. So all of those things are what I would call system change. Now I feel like I've been way too depressing up to now. So I'm going to try and be more cheerful because one of the things that I find very cheerful is the fact that what's really absolutely certain is things are not going to stay the same as they are now. Where we are now economically, socially, environmentally, educationally, politically, and okay, I have promised to get through the whole evening without using the B word. The B word is banned. If you want to ask me about it later, do so privately, but I'm not going to mention the B word. We can all do with a night off from the B word. Where we are now is not going to continue. And that's actually a message of great hope, 
because what we're doing now is trashing the planet and creating a pretty miserable society, and it is going to change. And so what this evening is about is how we think about changing this in ways that make sure we don't do more damage by trying to fix one thing and breaking something else. And I'll give you a case study of how we did this, a case study that's a lot in the news at the moment. You've probably heard of the phrase Dieselgate, which was the whole issue of people were told, and there's probably some people in this room who thought they were doing the right thing. They were told, buy a diesel car because it produces less carbon emissions. And this is what happens when you just focus on one thing. If you just focus on climate change, on carbon emissions, as crucially <coughs> important as that is, you might not think that that's going to cause a massive increase in air pollution, which is then going to have a massive impact on health, which is going to impose big costs on our NHS. All of those things happen when you just think about one thing. We have to think about the economic, social, environmental, even political impacts of everything we do. Okay, I'm going to go skirt round the B word and say, you know, we got to that point through that because politically people felt utterly disenfranchised. So how do we do systems thinking? How do we get everything thinking about holistically? Now, I admit that I'm really, you know, I'm impressed that we got this bigger audience on a, um, a, a meeting about system change tonight, but I'm not expecting a million strong march down Whitehall going, what do we want system change? When do we want it now? But what we can do and what I'd urge you and ask everyone to think about focusing on is something that perhaps some people know, maybe not everyone in this room even knows about, is the, the sustainable development goals as agreed by the United Nations. Uh, you might recall there was the Millennium Development Goals, which went towards 2000. Now, they were focused on the global south and looking at some real basics of basically ending hung hunger, slashing maternal mortality and child mortality, some very obvious development type goals. Now, one of the challenges, of course, is that we didn't meet those Millennium Development Goals. But we did, particularly in some areas like maternal health, there was some really big progress and that drive did have some positive impacts. But what succeeded the Millennium Development Goals is the Sustainable Development Goals, which every country in the world has signed up to, including the UK. And it's a set of 19 goals, different areas. Many of them have scores of targets. Some of them are quite measurable. Some of them are quite woolly. And they cover everything from the state of the oceans to tackling climate change to ending hunger and poverty to ensuring everyone gets an education. It's basically a pretty broad spread of the kind of goals that you would think of for education, for well-being, for ensuring a reasonably decent world. Now, this is also known as Agenda 2030 because we're supposed to be achieving this all around the world by 2030. Now, I'm going to tonight sort of park the rest of the world for the moment and focus on Britain because that's enough to be going on with, to be quite frank. And in the UK, what this has largely been seen as is this is a, something for the International Development Department. Difford can, can work on this and worry about this and help other places, you know, get up to the kind of level they should get to. But Britain doesn't currently go anywhere near meeting any of the 19 goals. And there's a very good organisation called, I wish they'd give it a, an easier name, uh, UK SSSD, and it's a consortium of NGOs, some very thoughtful private companies, groups of people, and they've recently put out a report on how Britain's doing on the Sustainable Development Goals. And the short answer is very badly. So there is a framework, a globally agreed framework. It's not perfect, but it's there. It's something we need to work towards. And one of the things that I want to do is get people talking about this and get people thinking about this and get people campaigning on this. Because we need to get this kind of systems thinking, whole system change into the way people are thinking about things. So how are we actually going to do that? 
one of the things when I first started is 2012, I was elected as Green Party leader and I did sort of meetings like this or more overtly political meetings. I would always get someone in the audience who would go, but you Greens, you just want us to wear hair shirt and live in caves, don't you? This was usually after I'd been extolling the virtues of home insulation and a warm, comfortable, affordable to heat home for everybody at some length. There is, and there has been the green movement, small g, g green, historically has been accused a bit of saying or people getting the message from us, you've all got to change your ways or you're going to die and the polar bears will change too. And you know, you, did you drive here this evening? <laughs> you, where did your shirt come from? And I am absolutely not concerned about individual behaviour. If you as an individual, you know, are trying to do the right thing in whatever ways you can, that's great. But I'm going to perhaps counterintuitively suggest to you that don't put too much effort into that. Because if you as an individual live the most environmentally and socially saintly life you could possibly imagine, and go to great lengths to ensure that there is no plastic in your house, you could have spent that time campaigning, say for better buses, for example. Whenever I come to Exeter, everyone's always talking to me about the buses. Um, you could have spent that time campaigning against Asian sweatshops, telling Zara or telling any store that's just been exposed, you don't want them using that sort of thing. So what I would say to you is, you know, to get system change, we all need to be working for it. And we need to be focusing on that rather than focusing primarily on our individual behaviour. I've got a saying that politics should be something you do, not have done to you. Now, I kind of suspect in some way everyone in this room, I will bet in some way or another, is doing politics. And I'm defining politics here broadly, not, you know, voting in elections, but working with others to change the world in whatever area interests you. And, you know, I go into schools and colleges and universities a lot. And when I go into schools and I say this is always my top message, politics should be something you do. And... They, they say, but how can we do politics? You know, we're only school pupils. And I say, well, you can start in the school, find something you don't like about the school, start a campaign to change it. At which point the teacher who invited me goes, oh, what have I done? <laughs> but we've seen with the example of Greta Thunberg, she's the now 16-year-old who started the whole climate strike movement. And there was a really interesting article about her in the FT last weekend uh, and her talking to her father and her father said that when she was about 11, she got really, really depressed. And it was the state of the world that really depressed her. And it was actually getting engaged and starting campaigning and starting to try and change things that really improved her mental health and well-being. And one of the things I know that when we're talking to people who are concerned about the state of the world, one of the things we have to do is fight depression, fight feelings of hopelessness. And I would say to you, the best way to do that is to start to take action yourself to change things. So I always believe that dialogue is better than monologue. So I'm going to stop in a minute and we'll go to questions because I think interactive is always better. But the single message I really ask you to take away is make politics what you do. Don't beat up on other people. Again, when I first was involved with the Green Party, you'd sometimes meet people who said, oh, I'd love to join the Green Party, but I can't because I drive a car. <laughs> Which made me want to scream and go, no! You know, lots of people have no alternative but to drive a car because where they live, there's no buses anyway. We have to embrace everyone. Start from where people are and bring them on board with whatever steps they can. 
and show them how we can actually improve our societies because basically now we're trashing the planet and creating a miserable society. And rather than just focusing, we need to talk about, as Extinction Rebellion is talking about, <coughs> the threatening stuff, climate change, 12 years. We also need to give people hope of how this makes their life, their communities better. It improves mental health. It improves well-being. If we have the buses, people get more exercise rather than just getting in the car outside their, their um, house. And then that takes pressure off the NHS. There's so many virtuous circles of changing the system. We have to think about the system as a whole. We have to think about the sustainable development goals. And we have to do that together. Because one of the things, you know, I'm going around the B word again. One of the things lots of people are feeling is powerless. I say people who wanted to take back control in 2016 were absolutely right. We're not in control of our societies. And by taking control, we can create the system change that we desperately need, that our environment needs, that our mental health needs, that our economic societies need. So you know, make politics what you do, make more of what you do, and be kind to each other and... Let's get together. That's my message. Thank you very much. Okay, so now we get to the Q&A. Anyone feeling brave? Yep. How, how, how do you think um, we're going to get companies to actually um, cover the costs of their environmental destruction and and do we need something that changes the way that companies are set up? Because at the moment, they've got that, you know, that overriding <laughs> requirement that they have to be just thinking about the bottom line and not thinking about the environmental costs. And I don't know, it seems like it'd be a, a big sea yeah. change in, in our legal system. Two, two parts of the answer to that. One is, of course, in um, UK, US and Australia, we have what's known as shareholder value capitalism. Companies are legally advised to make maximum value for their shareholders and not think about anything else. That's their legal obligation. Whereas in Germany and other parts of the continent, you have what's known as stakeholder capitalism and companies have explicit legal responsibilities to their communities, to their workers. And that is a kind of form, a kind of structure but they're still trashing the planet. They're just trashing the planet a bit less than we are, our companies are by and large. And so what we need to do, and what I would say is the model for this, is we have to say that every product has to have the real cost on the price tag. If you produce something that needs to be recycled, you, the company, should have to pay up front the cost that the recycling is going to be in a circular economy. You ensure that you're not doing any damage. Every bit of damage you do has to be accounted for and paid for. So... Um, it was actually an academic who, we used to talk about environmental taxes, but I prefer the term an academic came up with, which is damage taxes. So if you're doing some damage, you have to pay for that damage. And so then if we take, you know, the T-shirt in Primark or Zara or wherever, it has to have the real price on it. But this is where we get to the systems thinking again, because actually the person who's got the job interview for the job they really need tomorrow has to have enough income to be able to buy that thing they actually need. So... Just ensuring that companies play the full cost, when we have a society when you know, there are more than a million visits to food banks, you have to change other things as well. You can't just change that situation. You can't just apply damage taxes. You have to look at the whole situation. You have to have, for example, a real living wage, not George Osborne's fake living wage. How can we tackle apathy? One of the things I'd really, really stress is that why are people apathetic and are people indeed truly apathetic? 
Um, I did a debate at Oxford Union, which the topic was individual apathy is to blame for climate change. And I was really quite astonished there were two Labour MPs on the, on the positive side blaming individual apathy. Because I cited, you know, a, 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 a particular theoretical woman, a single mum in Brixton. And she's worrying tonight about her son coming home alive. She's worrying about whether her free zero hours contracts will make enough money for her to pay the rent. She's worrying about putting food on the table tomorrow. And she's not worrying about climate change or environmental destruction. And I will not blame her one little iota for not worrying about those things. Large numbers of people have so much other stuff going on of pure survival that to think beyond their own survival, their children's, their family's survival, is, there's no space. And I'm not going to blame them for that. And again, we come to the systems thinking. If you're going to give people the time and energy to think about 5, 10, 50 years hence, they have to have that time and energy. And we come then to long working hours. Britain has the longest working hours in Europe and double the average commuting time of the rest of Europe. All these things are interrelated. So I think there's that. And I think there's also people who are utterly disempowered, who feel powerless. I spend a lot of my time talking about voting systems and the fact that in the last election, 68% of votes didn't count. And if we think about, you know, I've met lots of people campaigning against building on the green belt. And yet we have local councils who are forced by the central government to allocate massive areas of land, which sometimes have to be greenbelt, for new housing. And so people say, well, you know, I campaigned to save that bit of greenbelt, but then the council, you know, I talked to my councillors and they didn't want to do it, but it's now got houses all over it anyway. And so lots of people don't feel like they can make a difference. And so they've given up. And that's perfectly understandable too. So, you know, it's like the kids in the school, I say, start the campaign. If they can win one campaign and learn about doing politics and learn about making change, then you get people engaged. So to tackle the apathy, find something that people are concerned about, whatever it is, at a small level, and then show them they can make a difference, because most people really believe they can't at the moment. 30-something, you know, I should really be someone that could go out there and, you know, play a part, but I don't feel like that. I don't, other than a huge population drop from something awful, I really don't see how things can get better. So how do you kind of see things changing? Well, I think I get into here that my sort of theory of political change, which is when I first joined the Green Party, we kind of had a, a gradualist idea of how political change happened. You know, we slogged and slogged away and we got our first Green Council elected. And a couple of years later, we slogged some more and got the second. And, you know, we made the council a little bit better and a little bit better. And about 20 years later, we'd take over the council and run things in a really nice way. But you'd see gradual improvements all the way along. But actually, political change, when I started to think about this, doesn't happen like that. Things stay stable for a long time and then they change suddenly and enormously. And the last time we had political change in Britain was when Margaret Thatcher was elected. Nothing has really changed since then. Blair was the child of Thatcher. Cameron was the child of Blair. We've had a political philosophy. If you were in the mainstream of politics, a political philosophy that said greed is good, inequality doesn't matter, and we can keep trashing the planet. But that actually came in very rapidly with a massive change from what came before. And you know, we've had about 40 years of that neoliberal consensus. Before that, after the Second World War, you had about 40 years of a social democratic consensus. And in that period, even Tories were perfectly comfortable with state ownership of coal mines and car factories. The expectation from Tories as much as from Labour was that there wouldn't just be a living wage, but what was known as the family wage. And a man, who was usually a man then, would earn enough money to support a wife and a couple of kids. You know, even if you were a postman, you expected to be able to get a mortgage, 
have that stable job, pay it off. And that was the political norm. That was the consensus. That's what everyone believed pretty well. And then suddenly, very rapidly, such Reagan in the States. And so you have this huge political disjunction where what is normal politics, how society works, changes enormously in a very short period of time. And I would say that we're now in that phase. And what I would say is that I think, you know, the reason why I focus very much on hope is I think hope is our emotion. We're saying there's enough resources in the world for everybody to have a decent life if we just share them out fairly. And I think that is demonstrably true. You know, if you actually get down to the, to the physics and the chemistry and the, the basics of it, there is enough resources for everybody. Now, I think politics will either come our way or it will go to the other extreme, which is UKIP or worse, which basically says, oh, it's a dangerous world with not enough resources. We've got to grab those resources for us and ours and shove all those others, whoever the others are, out and build walls to keep them out. So that's why I really focus on the hope, because I think fear is their weapon, whereas our weapon is hope. And we have to do that and focus on the fact that the change will happen really radically. We forget how fast societies do change. And when I first joined the Green Party in 2006, you might recall Gordon Brown had abolished boom and bust. And when I went round, and, you know, it was, it was obvious to the Green Party then that we drastically needed to change, that we were breaking the systems, we were right at the edge. But you went and knocked on people's doors and said, we've really got to change, you know, this isn't working. There's 19% of pensioners living in poverty. And people kind of sat on their sofas and sort of went, well, you know, I know the grandkids love to worry about climate change, but hey, everything's going pretty swimmingly, isn't it? And, you know, my life feels comfortable and it's all secure and stable. Gosh, that's a phrase that rings a bell. Um, <laughs> then saying we need to change, boy, it was an uphill struggle to sell the story of change. Whereas now everyone understands we have to change. So actually now is a really easy time to do our kind of politics compared to 2006. Thank you. <laughs>